This is Passport to Everywhere, an incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your your Passport to Everywhere. Today's guest is an extraordinary woman who's impacted and inspired the tourism industry in more ways than one. Zita Cobb is the founder and CEO of the Canadian foundation Shorefast, as well as the creator of and innkeeper at Fogo Island Inn, one of the most captivating and impressive, yet in my opinion, still under the radar hotels in the world, which happens to be celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. You might be thinking, how has such a remarkable property managed to remain so seemingly undiscovered? Well, the inn is located on the tiny remote island of Fogo in Newfoundland, Canada, which is also where Zita was born and grew up. The inn is perched on stilts overlooking the North Atlantic Ocean, and it's not easy to get to, but visiting this hotel is certainly worth the trip. The Fogo Island Inn became one of the world's most innovative and iconic hotels almost immediately upon opening. Zita's unique approach to regenerative tourism, which she'll talk about more in our interview, has created ripple effects throughout the Fogo Island community, but also the hospitality industry at large. The inn, which has a striking contemporary design, is ripe with contrast. It's filled with humanity, personality, and charm, And yet it's completely remote, surrounded by a vast, wild landscape, one where often a guest looking out the window might see icebergs drifting by. At the end of the day, however, it's not just the stunning design and the breathtaking landscape that give Fogo Island its reputation. The people who run the inn and the community that surrounds it are a large part of its story and what makes a visit there so special. With this project, Zita has proven that circular design and regenerative tourism can and do work. I'm excited to talk to her about that today and to reflect on the past decade, learn about life on Fogo Island, and hear about her hopes to come. Because despite her long list of accomplishments that include, but are not limited to, interviewing President Obama being sent to an asylum to survive tuberculosis at a very young age for a year, being named to the Order of Canada, and at one point being the third highest paid female executive on American payrolls. Zita is not done. She's got much more to accomplish. Up next on Passport to Everywhere, I'm speaking with Zita Cobb. Plus, to celebrate the Canadian Hotel's 10-year anniversary, we've partnered with Fogo Island to offer a chance to win a three-night stay. To enter, head to travel.indigari.com slash FOGO. Explore the future of travel with Melissa Biggs Bradley on Passport to Everywhere, streaming now on all podcast platforms. And for more on Melissa's work, follow Indigari Travel on Instagram. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere. Here's your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley. I'm speaking with Zita Cobb, the creator and innkeeper of Fogo Island Inn, one of the most spectacular hotels in the world. To win a chance for a three-night stay, head to travel.indigare.com slash Fogo, F-O-G-O. And with that, 
let's pretend that we're on Fogo, the two of us. Will you tell us about Fogo Island? I know you are an eighth generation Fogo Islander and one of seven children, and your father was a fisherman on Fogo. Tell us what it was like growing up on Fogo and what it looks like. For those who've not been there, What what is the island like? What was it like growing up there? And what did you experience as a native Fogo Islander? Well, I think everything of value starts with place. And I think everything that we create in our lives of value to our lives has to have place in it. And so this place called Fogo Island is at 49 degrees, 44 minutes north. It is off the northeast coast of the most eastern province of Canada. So it's an island off an island, as we say, far away from far away. And it has a very specific geography that is shaped by the Labrador Current, which we now know is the lungs of the planet. The Labrador Current flows from the west coast of Greenland down past Fogo Island. And it's, it's a very fast current, and it meets the Gulf Stream off the coast of Newfoundland, and that's what's given rise to this productive fishery. Of course, of all the things we humans know, that what we don't know is much about the ocean, even though we shouldn't call it the earth. We should actually call the planet the ocean because there's more ocean than there is land. And so I grew up there on this island that has 10 different communities on an island that's four times the size of Manhattan. So it's about 300 square kilometers. It has 2,500 people now and growing slightly, um, even, even post-pandemic, we're getting our feedback under us. When I was growing up, it uh, had a peak of 6,000 people. And I jokingly say that actually I have, I am, I'm going to be 65 in July and I have lived in three centuries because until I was 10, I lived happily in the 19th century because we didn't have running water. My parents couldn't read and write and we didn't have healthcare. We didn't have any of the things that we think are absolutely necessary to human life. And now it wasn't good when someone got a toothache. So I don't want to romanticize it entirely. However, I lived in an intact community and I understood what it was to muck along with other people. Maybe people you didn't really like, but that's what made us strong. Yeah. And we had an ecological logic. We fished for a living and we had a social logic. When I was 10, the worst of the 20th century came down on top of us in the form of the industrialization of the fishery, which was, of course, based entirely on economic logic and not on social logic and not certainly not on ecological logic. And my career, so my father, when I was 10, said he figured out they must be turning the fish into money. Like, why else would they fish night and day until every last fish is gone? And he said, you've got to go study this business stuff because if we don't understand it, it's going to eat everything we love. And it's kind of defined my life. And I did study business and I had a career in wave division multiplexing, which is now the 21st century. And in a way, I feel very complicit in the digital revolution that is in some ways undermining our social health right now. 
So th- this is the three centuries, all from this little place. And uh, I moved back home or went back home 15 years ago to try and address the question, how can a place, any place, pick a place, how can a place endure in the face of these human systems that we have created that are on a good day, agnostic to place and on a bad day, hostile to place. And I do think, and maybe this is gonna sound very Pollyannish, but I actually think we're waking up and maybe it's the AI revolution that's frightening us a little bit. Uh, We're waking up to the idea that maybe we have to find our way back home because we're flesh and blood creatures. Yeah, it's fascinating. Zita, and you've thought about it a lot, and, and there's so much in there I'd love to get into because, as you said, it starts with place, and you have had the benefit of these this perspective of multiple centuries and understanding probably in a more thoughtful way or conscious way than a lot of people do the benefits of the social logic um, and the risks of the ecological and economic logic, right? So when you returned to Fogo 15 years ago, and I believe with the intention of, of trying to figure out how to safeguard this place that means so much to you, what, what was the way you thought about how to do that through building this in? Because obviously you thought about the social and economic and ecological contracts. So your concept Give us a little bit of background on how that came to be, and I'll, and I'll sum up a little bit for people and tell me if I've got this right. But you left, you had a great education, you had a very successful career, and you had the ability to then, at 50, reflect on what you wanted to do with the second half of your life. And that brought you home in a way that hopefully more of us are thinking about going home. And so what did you then decide to do about it and how did you approach it? And Melissa, some of us just need to go home in the place we're already in, like actually be present in the places and engaged where we are. Um, That's a very good summary, by the way. My theory of change is that communities are of communities of place are the basic building blocks of any society, a nation. And because in and of themselves, they're whole. Fogel Island is whole unto itself. It has a particular history. It has particular cultures, because actually these 10 communities are not all the same. It has a particular ecology. It has particular memories. It, it's where our Our dead people still are are very particular to us. We don't want to leave them. And so I think our ability to make meaning and and have a sense of coherence in our lives is place and community is very central to that. And so how do you give a a place a chance to endure in a globalized world? Well, I start with, and maybe it's the only thing I know how to do, I start with economy. And so I say, how do we build an economy that's based on the inherent assets of this place that we love and these four questions of asset-based community development. It will lead you very quickly to an end. What do we know in this place? We must know something. What do we have? What do we love? 
What do we miss and what can we do about it? And so that last question, of course, takes you into action. And so if you kind of survey what, a, what Fogo Island has and what do we love, it has this compelling, specific, powerful geography, a powerful nature. It has a culture, and the culture of Fogo Island is no different. Culture is nothing more than a human response to a place. And the nature and culture of Fogo Island are wildly important to us as Fogo Islanders. And maybe we're arrogant enough to think that they might be of interest to other people. And so the other thing about Fogo Islanders is, and maybe, I don't know if this is an Islander thing, it's certainly a Newfoundland and Labrador uh, as a province, is like this. We are genetically and culturally predisposed to really profound hospitality. And I think it's because like, this is not an easy place to make a living for all these centuries. So we kind of need each other. And uh, maybe small places were kind of nosy about people too. So that helps because hospitality and nosiness are very nicely linked, I think. Um, and so if you go through that process on a place like Fogo Island, which we did, it leads you very quickly to say, okay, we want to build economy because no economy, no community. For sure. And we have a fishery, which is still the most important part of our economy. I read a lot about the visitor economy and tourism and enough before we started to be sufficiently frightened that we were starting potentially a dance with the devil. And lots and lots of communities around the world have you know, taken on tourism development projects that have not been solidly enough linked to the place and the nature and character and dreams of the place. And it got away from them in a way that the scale just ran away from them basically. So, but we started with a small scale, an inn that only has 29 rooms uh, based on really one woman uh, who lives in the community of Jobat's Arms saying, she said, but we're only 2,500 people. We can only love so many people at a time. And so that kind of de that defined our business model. And so the plan was to develop an inn which is a beautiful platform to put what we know. What do we know about making? We've had centuries of making you know, textiles, hooking and making quilts and knitting and all of this. Okay, that's a place where we can put those skills to work. So we keep them because that's a part of our cultural knowledge. And it had nowhere to go. How, how do we grow things in this subarctic environment? What do we eat? Oh, there's a place for us to put that knowledge to work and continue to develop it because it now has kind of a financial model behind it. And how do we care for people? You know, how, how do we give you the comfort and knowledge that you can go to bed at night and know that we are on watch for you, whether that, you know, has to do with your physical safety or your, you know, your digital safety or anything else that you trust us for. How do we do the, those things? So it's in the practice of holistic hospitality that we actually kind of figure out who we are too. Like in a way, it like I cannot tell you the number of times we're kind of looking back to, well, what would our grandparents think of this? How would they solve this? What would and so it really is like we're always mining our own history and our own culture for innovations in the in the in the moments that we're living. And I think it deepens our own sense of attachment to our place. And, you know, very early on, 
I remember being in a conversation with the people who were coming to work at the inn and he did, the inn wasn't open yet. And none of us had ever done anything like this before. And so everything was examined from first principles. And one person said, well, I don't really know how to do any of this that you're hiring me to do because I've never worked in an inn. I've never stayed in an inn. I used to work in the fish plant, she said. And it's like, so, and then, and the people who are going to come, like, we don't, what do they need? Like, who are they? And what are their expectations of us? So anyway, all of this anxiety, we, we sort of got ourselves comfortable 10 years ago, because we're in, this is our 10th anniversary that the inn's been open. We got ourselves comfortable by saying, oh, okay, we're going to pretend that everybody who gets off the ferry is a third cousin that we have never met. And our job is to help that, and that third cousin has never been home because, you know, they grew up somewhere else. Our job is to help that third cousin arrive and be here with us. And so that you know, sort of little mental device helped us get past all the anxieties of the things we didn't know and actually tapped into the things we do know. And that's yeah, that's the, it's an economic development story. It's a cultural and, development story. You know, you mentioned, unfortunately, other places that, have made this dance with the devil where tourism where on the one hand may have saved them economically but it has destroyed their community and culture through the homogenization and trying to please people in a way that made them lose a sense of self um and as i listen to you i think about your model and how well it is it built to enhance and preserve what keeps any place, as you said, you know, a true culture comes from its unique community and its unique sense of place. So I would imagine that many people since you started 10 years ago have come to understand the genius behind these principles and looked at how this can be adaptable in other places because the the world certainly as someone who loves to travel and travels for accessing really unique cultures and communities there's a lot of danger of that being lost in many places how is what you come up with applicable to other places i think the process it's, it's not what we did, it's how we did it. Um, is That is the part that is applicable to other places. And I think this asset-based community development, there's a methodology in this. If we are looking, um, let's say strictly at the tourism as a sector, I'll back up a little bit. There are two things I think necessary to so-called sustainable tourism model. Um, one is the scale has to be right for the size of the place. Now, very tricky to keep the genie in the bottle. That's, of course, the part of the problem because you start out with a notion of what the right scale is, but it gets away from you quickly. Um, but getting the right scale is essential. And the second one is it can't be your only industry because if it's your only industry, you are trading in what your culture used to be and you are commodifying your culture to fit some formula and the fuel for your culture, in our case, it's the fishery, the fuel is missing. And so you, you, it, you really just, it becomes 
empty fairly quickly. I mean, I think empty for the visitor and empty for, for us. You know, because you end up, I don't know, what are we going to sell ourselves as? Oh, what a cute little, you know, 19th century fishing village. Well, that's not that interesting to young people. That doesn't have a lot of future in it. And I would argue doesn't have a lot of meaning to visitors either. And so I think it's thinking about business differently. And I, I notice a lot written about this uh, kind of ideas around regenerative economy started in agriculture. What is regenerative agriculture? How do you build a system that actually feeds itself, refe- you know, refuels itself as opposed to feeding on something, destroying that something and then moving on to the next thing? So how do you build regenerative economy? And I think it, it, it really has to do with the, with starting out with what are the what are the things that have value before we start applying economic models to it and, and applying other logic systems. So what has value? How do we create business models that interact with those things that have value in a way that makes them stronger as opposed to extracts the value, monetizes it, and moves on? So if you think about tourism development generally, I mean, sort of the bad old days of tourism development was find the Find a formula, and there is a formula. I mean, there are people who, there are organizations that go around the world, we're going to develop another property here and a property here and a property here and a property here. Uh, And we're in such a hurry and we already got the methodology figured out. We actually didn't build it in response to the specificity of that place. Now, the bad news is doing it this way, the way we've done it, it's hard work. Now, I'm not saying it's not hard work the other way, but it's harder this way because it has to come from the place, from the ground up. And any system that we build, whether it's a tourism system, I don't know, a health system or any system, if it's not, it doesn't start from the flesh and blood people in the place, you are going to end up hurting that place. You're going to flatten it. And of course, the the bad old days of tourism, that's what we were doing. We were flattening the world by rolling, like steamrolling out these kinds of tourism products that, you know, had local people doing folkloric dances on Friday night as a demonstration of culture, as opposed to actually inviting people into our community. So I think the future of of tourism has to be in the deepest way we can do it from the roots, community-based. Yeah. So can you explain how the Shorefast Foundation is part of that? Because you built the hotel Yes, as an economic model, but also with a component that would be regenerative, as you would say. We sort of have this, I suppose it's a tagline, which is many, we we rarely use the word luxury, but let me use it here. Many luxury properties have charitable foundations. Our charitable foundation has a luxury property. So the developer, for lack of a better word, of the inn was Shorefast, which is a registered charity of Canada that is focused on strengthening local economy, strengthening local, not just economies. Because when when I say the word economy, I mean that in a a very holistic way, that it includes cultural, social, ecological well-being of a place. And so that was our intention. And so that is what drove the way we developed the inn and it was developed through a process of 10 million questions about ourselves about our history uh, about what we care about about what matters and so the inn actually belongs to shorefast 
the registered charity. And so it's any of the surpluses go back into Shorefast and that helps support other programs like our environmental programs and our we have, we have something called Fogo Island Arts, which is probably our biggest program that we run under Shorefast. And it's a residency-based contemporary art program, which is really about knowledge because art's about knowledge and, and the knowledge that communities need now to navigate these slippery times is more than just what we will get on our latest social media feed. And I'm sure most people are thinking about we about the digital disruption. I mean, we what we have seen in the last decade of digital disruption around social media is just a small taste in the so-called attention economy and you know the impacts that that's had on trust and polarization and all of the rest of it. That's a small taste of what's ahead of us with AI. And so I would say more than ever, we have arrived at a place that communities and a place and our relationships, because those places hold our relationships, matter more than they've ever mattered. Because what do we trust? How, how do we interact? How do we collaborate, solve any problems? Yes, these great digital tools, like the one that we're using right now, is a remarkable and wonderful thing to a point to a point and we need so we need communities of place and it's thinking about economic development thinking about how we do business differently and starting a place starting and ending with place yeah uh, so you mentioned the million questions around you know what is it we love what is important and you built that into the fabric of the inn and and obviously as you just said community is so important and that I'm sure as you were building the inn, you were thinking about how does this, what role does this play within this vibrant community? Can you describe, and the, the building is beautiful. Um, it was thoughtfully done. You have incredible art in the place as well as lots of handmade objects and things. But can you describe it for listeners, what the experience of a visitor when they arrive on Fogo and then when they come to the inn what you were hoping they would feel and what it looks like? Well, it's the whole enchilada in a way. And so most of our visitors arrive in Gander. And uh, the, some people want to have their own rental car and, and drive themselves to the ferry. And, and some people want a helicopter in. And that's, that's all good and fine or different ways to arrive. But I would say the typical way to arrive is somebody picks you up in Gander. And that someone isn't wearing a uniform. It's a, the person who lives on Fogo Island. They, they're not employees of the inn. Uh, they are compensated through a different model or community host. And so their job is to help you arrive. And you, you leave Gander and, and they drive and you follow the Gander River to the sea. And by the time you arrive at the sea, you kind of partially arrive in Newfoundland because it takes three days for first your body arrives and then your mind starts to arrive. And by the third day, your soul starts to arrive. So our job is to help you arrive. And then you take the ferry and you're approaching this little island by ferry. And I mean, and I think islands are very, can be very intimidating places because they are whole onto themselves and can be hard to kind of penetrate. So you'll arrive with this community host and you arrive at the inn and there is, a, and sometimes the community host actually takes you all the way to your room and just, you know, make sure that uh, you have fully arrived. And, you know, we spend a lot of time debating things like people just walk in the door, like a lot of fancy places will offer you a drink. And, and so th these are the kind of conversations we have. It's like, 
Why would anyone want to drink? They probably have to pee more than anything else. And so like, just like stop with your program, like really try and under, and that person who's been with you, they know what you need right now. Uh, and so we, it's, we don't have to make a formula of arrival. So it's, it's uh, arriving is a thing in itself. And when people walk in the door of the inn, the first thing you're confronted with are the, the, is this like heart-stopping view of the North Atlantic. And do you really want someone coming up to you and going, okay, now we need your credit card and now we got to do this. And it's like the person's got a lot coming at them. And so it's, we need to create the space for, for them to, to take what's coming and anything that has to do with administration can be, can be dealt with at a different time. And so with it, a stay at the inn, um, there is the stay, there's the food, of course, and every gesture in the food reflects something about the place and the Labrador currents. We, our goal is that 80% of everything we offer you to, to drink and eat, except for wine, uh, comes from near, very near. We grow it, we forage it, we hunt it, we fish it. Uh, and we show it the respect that it deserves. And it should be, I would say, probably one of the more specific cuisines because we are kind of relentless about the 80-20. Uh, and then the visit to the inn, you're actually, you're hosted by the island, really, by the, all folk islanders. And so whether it's hiking or, you know, whether it's getting out on a boat or whether it's, you know, engaging with people who work with berries and berry picking and jamming and making, whatever the things are, whether it's art, because, you know, we have these incredible studios around the island, whatever it is you are doing, they're all glimpses of a whole. And I think people feel like they've arrived to a place that's whole. Now, we also have people who will come and say, actually, no, I just want to read. I want to rest and I want to read and I don't really want to spend time in the company of others. And that, that's fine, too. I mean, the inn is a, is a perfect place as our, that kind of retreat. So it's, it's part retreat. It's part natural adventure. It's part cultural immersion. And, and different people will want more or less of different ones. But what we want to offer you more than anything is an experience of, of wholeness. And Zita, what is the greatest challenge that Fogo Island is facing? I mean, you've mentioned that we're all facing AI challenges, and I want to get into that with you in a minute. But you've also mentioned the ocean and how dependent you are on the Labrador Channel. And we are all, I think, very aware of the risks that face the ocean from climate change and other issues. Um, what would you say is the greatest challenge and how are you facing it? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge to Fogo Island, Melissa, is that it's the biggest challenge for every community of place. And that is simply that the systems that exist that we need to work for us don't. So let's just start with we uh, during the lockdowns of the pandemic, because we were closed for 18 months, which was uh, a, a brutal experience in every way. Um, we started a community economies pilot project, and we got together with four other communities across Canada to sort of say, how are you doing in your place? And what are the levers that will either hurt or help you endure and flourish in your place? And we came up with four really important favors, there are many others, but the four we focused on was access to financial capital. Because most of the banking systems, and especially in, in Canada, the banking system, which is like 
in some big banks, it's an oligopoly. They increasingly are optimizing for large, for big. I mean, somehow humans got convinced that fewer, bigger is better. And we haven't figured out how to work in the, in the small and the medium scales. And so banks, like we lost our bank on Fogo Island. That really hurts our local economy. We, we have like 60 odd little businesses on that island. It's a, it's a riot of businesses. And those businesses need to change hands when owners are aging out. It's not that there aren't younger people that want to buy them, but there's no access to loans and financial capital. So access to financial capital is like the lifeblood of a community. Access to data, it's very hard to get data about how we're doing at the community scale. I mean, you can get it at the provincial scale, but to drill it down to community, and certainly if that data is available, it's not necessarily available in the hands of people doing economic planning in that place. Architectures for collaboration, super important. When you talk to, say, business leaders about communities, they were the first to point out to you, yeah, but communities are not very coherent. You go into any community, you can pick one in Idaho, you can pick one in Newfoundland, and go into a community and say, well, what does this community think about this? Or what do they want? It's like, well, who the heck do you ask? What do you do? Go to the grocery store and ask everyone who comes in and take the, you know, the average of the answers? Or do you go to the mayor? Well, the mayor has one perspective. That's a municipal perspective. But that's not in and of itself enough to actually do economic planning that reflects the whole. So building these architectures for collaboration, because we know that resources follow coherence. And communities aren't always coherent. Sometimes they're downright self-canceling. Um, and then the, the fourth one is, how do we build the mindsets and skill sets in the places we live that foster entrepreneurial communities? Because so much has been taken away because the world has been organized around institutions, right? Government departments that are going to work on homelessness, big companies that supply our food. And so humans have gotten really good at institutional management, but we haven't figured out how to do place management. So we have to reconcile these silos, these pillars that touch communities, institutions. We have to reconcile institutional management with place management. And so, I mean, the most compelling example I can give you of this is, you know, we, we've been able to do many things in the 15 years that we've been at Shorefast on the island. But it's still a, a, a huge struggle to get the plane that lands in Gander to land at a time that makes any sense for the departure time of the ferry. Because they're optimized in different. One is, you know, a, a major airline and the other is a provincially run ferry system. Nobody in either of these two systems looks at the place implications of the disconnect. So I would say the biggest threat to places, including Fogo Island, is th that we don't get smart fast enough to understand that we Yes, institutional management. Of course, we need good companies and we need to make intelligent scheduling decisions that benefit an airline, but it also has to be reconciled to what are the needs of the place. That's the turn I think we have to make because if we don't, we end up spitting out places out of the economy. People fall out of their own stories. I mean, if you think of the many manifestations of despair in this world, whether they're mental health challenges and homelessness challenges and you know, increasing concentration of wealth and all of that, much of these things, many of these things, not, no, all of these things manifest in the places we live. And the best ways to work on them is in the places we live. So inviting place to the party is the biggest challenge and how, how, to, how to make that move. That's so interesting. And, and you mentioned earlier AI and the, the importance of 
the humans in community. This is a lot of what you've just been talking about. What do you foresee some of the negative and positive impacts of AI on tourism? Because hopefully there are some positive ones. I think um, for sure there are many positive ones. As, as they say about any of these kinds of disruptive technologies, this one more than any, the upside is good. The downside is really, really, really bad. So I'm going to try and not sound too much like Yuval Harari, but I don't know if you've listened to his, he, he gave a lecture recently uh, on this. And, you know, he started off by saying, I'm not going to tell you the, the good parts of it because the people who are behind the, these products and rolling around, they're, they're going to tell you that. Um, I personally see more downsides than I see upsides. And just because, as Harari says more eloquently than I can ever say, what is, we, we've been through a decade of the attention economy. We know what happens when we allow algorithms to channel what we're consuming in the way of information online. That has caused divisions and a kind of hardening of, of perspectives that is easy for that to happen when we're actually not out fighting with the neighbor about his, you know, exactly go fight with the neighbor. You're actually going to have to learn to get along with them. But instead, what we do online is we just, we just leave that channel and we go to another channel where people agree with us. I think with, with AI, AI has mastered human language. Human language is the operating system of human civilization. And that will disrupt our ability to communicate with each other. And if we can't communicate with each other, we're certainly not going to be collaborating. And as Harari points out, AI feeds on inputs from humans, feeds on human culture, and will be producing culture. What does that mean? What does that mean to our ability to make meaning? I mean, I, I, I come back to... In, in, sort of I have started every day reminding myself what are, what is anything for? What are we doing anything for? And who is it for? And if you look at any studies of human, I don't like the word happiness, but human well-being, let's say, uh, it always comes down to three things. We all need a sense of competence, you know, to be good at something, to be, you know, well-regarded by others for being good at something, for as my father used to say, to be useful. That's the first one. We all want to have a sense of agency in our lives. We know we're born and we're going to die. There's not much we can do about that. Well, we can maybe take care of ourselves so we die later. But in between being born and dying, we want to have some input or decision-making or control, the big word, over our own lives. And so you can decide who you're going to partner with. You can decide what you're going to put on in the morning. But a sense of agency is really important to our well-being and a sense of connectedness with other people. Now, there's a fourth one that comes up frequent, more frequently now, which is that we need a sense of the future. And of course, I think there's quite a lot of despair about the future because of the state of the planet, uh, and not just the state of the planet, maybe the state of our social health. So all of those four things that we need for to be well, um, I think that they all involve place. They all involve place. And I think this is kind of an exciting, like I, I think the, the sector of the visitor economy or tourism 
is, is actually the, the sector that should lead in this. It should lead us home. Because by its very nature, we're coming to each other's communities. So if not us to show the way home, then who? Well, and to me, I think travel when it works and, you know, in a place that has a strong sense of culture and community is the antidote to what you were describing that a machine cannot do. It cannot provide you with a sense of connection. It cannot provide you with a sense of humanity and, and, and meaning and collaboration. Whereas when you're in a community and you are in a place where people are doing something that means something to them and welcoming you with hospitality, and as you said, you are living with others that you may not have chosen. Uh, and I think, you know, that, again, that to me is one of the great antidotes of the attention economy is that, you know, the, the real world and, and part of life is adapting to people who you have not necessarily chosen. And figure there's a great Anne-Mara Lindbergh quote in Gift from the Sea where she talks about if you've ever gone on a long train ride or a ship's voyage, you wind up with people that you have not, or spend time in a small village, you wind up with people that you may not have picked. And if you live in a big city, you end up picking all people who are like you. And it is not through those exchanges that we learn to grow and we learn what we're made of. It's through making peace with, or, you know, conversing with those who are different from us. And those are not necessarily the self-selection. We call it mucking along with other people, Melissa just muck along with each other because that's how we, like if we just hang out with the ones that we agree with or, or and we hang out online even more so, we just get smaller and smaller and smaller instead of bigger and bigger and bigger. And yeah, I think that there's, we've forgotten, I mean, we're, we're really at another one of these forks in the road. We have forgotten that we are physical beings and the way we know things is actually with our whole bodies. Like empathy lives in our bodies. And it is true that AI having mastered and is getting better at it by the second human language is also capable of creating intimacy with us, fake intimacy. It's not real intimacy. Real intimacy has to be embodied because we are. We are. And in the travel systems, you know, I don't know, online booking systems and all of the, I mean, there's enough optimizing that has gone on already that disfavors the small. Like our, we, we could never afford one little property to, to we, we've never had a digital ad because we could never afford to do that. Um, and so our ways of existing in the world are very different from, you know, I don't know, big private equity owned properties where they own a dozen of them and they can buy your attention online. And so I think that AI is going to make that harder, not easier for small places. It will, I think, make the disfavoring of the small and the peculiar 
speed up. So I worry about that. Is it going to make me be able to get a, a flight faster? Probably. Yeah. But I do think that we, you know, again, going back to where we are human, we, we feel when we're at home in a place, we feel when we have true empathy and relationships. Um, and more and more, as you said, the, the tourism community can lead us in those experiences that are very valuable and give us those true connections and, and certainly a place like Fogo. So I want to go back quickly to Fogo and what it's like to be there and when and and what your perfect day is there. And you, you and I have talked, I know that unlike the rest of the world that has four seasons, Fogo Island has seven seasons, which I love and, and the names even are wonderful. Pick a season, Zita, and transport us to your perfect day on Fogo Island. And to me, this is the antidote of all of the, the despair we think of with what AI can lead to. And it's the opposite. It's, it's really gives us a sense of why we want to be on earth and, and how to live a day. Exactly. Why we want to be here. I, I, let's take pack ice season because we're kind of still in it. Um, it's when all of the ice, the pack ice, which is multi-year ice forms up on the West coast of Greenland and comes down and behind it come the icebergs. And so uh, we can have all seven seasons in a day this time of year. Um, and so the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning on Fogo Island is you rush. And I mean, you rush to the window to see what is on the go with the weather. And, and the first thing you're going to want to establish is what direction is the wind blowing? And we've got all kinds of adages about what different wind directions mean. And we're very finely attuned to the wind. Um, and so nowadays the pack ice is down. You can, when you go to bed the night before, the ice is in a certain position. When you wake up in the morning, everything has shifted. And that tells you a lot about the wind and the currents. And so icebergs are around now. So you want to choose your hiking trails. Let's say you're going to go hiking, which is one of the most amazing things to do, because these are footpaths that go along the North Atlantic. Um, and they are, a lot of them are, have been there for, people use them for get to community to community for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so, but you want to choose the one that's going to maximize your chance to see icebergs as close as you can. And so I will always pick a hiking trail based on wind direction, and I will choose how I'm going to approach some of the loop trails based on wind. And I can tell from the wind where I'm most likely to see an iceberg closest. And so that will determine where I'm going walking today. Because we're a small island, we have a harbor that works really well for every storm. So there's always some part of the island that you are actually sheltered from the wind. And, you know, the, the, the most, I think, the most dynamic part of the island is the north part, which faces into the North Atlantic. Uh, but it's not every day that you want to go on a trail there. You might want to go up on Waterman's Brook where you're a bit more protected. And so this kind of constant, you're always in this living relationship with nature, always. And it's, it, you know, my father used to say to us when we were kids, make friends with the weather. It's your best friend. If you, if you get up in the morning and you decide you're going to be angry at the weather, I mean, you're going to have a tragedy every day because of the weather. you might be looking for this and that's not what the weather gave you today. And so this kind of living as it is with it, you cannot escape nature on Fogo Island. You just can't. And it presses on you in ways that are really beautiful. And you, I, you feel incredibly alive and a part of something whole. And I keep coming back to this, like the experience of being on the island is, is this experience of being whole and being a part of a 
the world as if it were whole, because it's not chopped up into, you know, you, you're going to do this, this one thing. It's all there. You, you're going to go out on a trail. You're going to, you're going to meet local people. You're going to watch to see what's happening with the fishery today. And, you know, are the boats going to get out through the pack ice in this particular season? And so it's this, yeah, constant, the art of walking upright, you know, that lovely, we, we use this poem a lot. It's so beautiful. The art of walking upright is uh, the art of using both feet. One is for holding on and one is for reaching out. It's like, you know, you, you put a foot forward and you could just stay in your room and reach, which is lovely too. But, but you're probably going to put yourself out in the world and be a part of it. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a safe world to be a part of. I mean, the, the only time of the year where I would say to you, hmm, hesitate about that, um, that hike is sometimes polar bears come down with the ice and are on the island, in which case we say to guests, okay, today and tomorrow, this bear is not dealt with. This is not the time to be wandering out on the trails. But other than that, you're not going to get eaten. Uh, and so it's a, it's a safe but super powerful natural place. Well, thank you, Zita. You know I've been wanting to get there for a visit for a long time. I am determined to try and do it in the next couple months. I will follow up with you. It just sounds like such a magical place, and I hope that I can experience it with you. As Alan Doyle said, Melissa, it's like a place you can't believe, but always hoped existed. That sounds perfect. It sounds like something we all need. Um, so one last question, Zita. If you had to sum up what you think the greatest lesson you've had from travel is, what would you say? That meaning and knowledge is in the specific. It's in specific people's lives in specific places. The answers are always in the specific. That's beautiful. I totally agree. And thank you. Melissa, thank you. I want to thank Zita Cobb for joining us today to talk about Fogo Island. It's been a joy discussing the future of travel and regenerative tourism. I hope her stories and perspective inspires you to travel differently and perhaps even find your way to the Fogo Island Inn. Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley will continue. Listen to new episodes Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132. Experience life without borders. You're listening to Passport, Passport to, to Everywhere. Everywhere. Here's your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley. Thank you for joining us today as we explored Fogo Island and learned about Zita's storied career. To celebrate the 10th anniversary, we've partnered with Fogo Island Inn to offer a chance to win a three-night stay. To enter, head to travel.indigare.com Fogo. Next week on Passport to Everywhere, I'll be joined by Art Farm CEO Ewan Venters to talk about the hotel legend Fife Arms and the Scottish Highlands. In the meantime, please call with your questions and leave a message at 646-535-7297. Send us a note on Instagram at Indigari Travel or write us an email, passport at SiriusXM.com. Thank you for tuning in. The adventure continues next week. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms and anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram 
at at Indigari founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I-N-D-A-G-A-R-E. Send us your questions about travel. Passport at SiriusXM.com. Or call us at 646-535-7297. This has been a Passport to Everywhere.